0: Verse 1 says, and God spoke all these words saying, Exodus 20 verse 1, and so the people heard the Ten Commandments in the audible voice of God. So let's read it here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And here's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Then you have the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Then you have the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Then you have the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. So this is a promise that's actually given for this commandment of of long days on the earth. And then, verse, and then, uh, commandment number six you shall not murder. Commandment number seven you shall not commit adultery. Commandment number eight you shall not steal. Commandment number nine you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Commandment number ten you shall not covet your neighbor's house, shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. And then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin." So one of the reasons for the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, is to have a society that uh, sinning is curbed at that point. This is good for society, okay? Um, And so, but look at this in verse verse 2 here. In verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Oh, I did forget this chart. Let's put the chart up there. Sorry about that. My bad. Uh, So, here are the Ten Commandments. You'll notice that the Jews believe "I am the Lord your God" is their first commandment, and then they put the next two together to make the second commandment. The Orthodox Church, Greek, sees "I am uh, I am the Lord your God" and you shall have another gods before me as being the first commandment, and then you shall not make yourself idols, the second commandment. The Roman Catholics and the Lutherans see all three of these as being the first commandment. Um, Anglican, Reformed, other Christians like ourselves here. Um, we have "You shall have no other gods before Me" is number one, and "Do not make for yourself idols" number two, and "Do not take the Lord's name in vain" number three. So the Catholics have "Do not take the Lord's name in vain" number two, and so they're off on this. For the rest of us, of where we are, we kind of get it together around the third one, okay? Around the fourth one, fifth, they're all the same. But the but the Catholics have all all three of those as being number one, and then the second one. Uh, do not take the Lord's name in vain. So uh, that makes him be off with the rest of us by one. So if you're talking to a Catholic and say, well, you know, the sixth commandment, and they go, do not commit adultery. And you go, no, do not murder. No, it's not, do not commit adultery. Well, here's, here's the reason. But understand we all believe that all of these are commandments from God and that there's ten of them. Okay, so it's really no big deal the number of them, just so long as we all have 10 and we believe in all those commandments. That's what really matters here. And I, I don't mean to, uh, to kind of poke fun here that they take the first three as one, and so that's why their numbering is off. I'm just saying it's off from us. I'm not saying it's off. Okay, I am a little. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm not. So it, it's kind of like, uh, but we all get there at 10. You know, and so we all believe the same things here with these that we might interpret them a little bit differently. Uh, The fun part is really when we get into these commandments, you will find that um, that you and I both disobey all of them all the time. Okay, all of them all the time. And so it'll be really fun when we get into that. Okay, every commandment has a flip side. So if it says you shall not, that tells you what you should do. Okay, and if it says you should do, it then tells you what you should not do. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father except through me, what is he saying? He's saying there's no other way. So there's a flip side to that. Well, what about this way? Well, no. When he says, I am the only way, well, then there's a flip side to say all these other ways are incorrect. Well, it's the same thing with, with the, the commandments. When they're given, then we'll see the flip side of that, of what that means on the negative or positive, depending on what. Commandment is given. So here in uh, chapter two, verse two, it says, "I am the Lord your God." Um, and this is going to be reviewed to some, but I'm adding some things to this, so you still need to listen up to this. But we always have some new people. Um, where it says the word Lord, there the word Lord there is Yahweh because it's L O R D capitalized in your Bible. Okay, that always means his personal name Yahweh. God here is Elohim to the plural form of God. Now, God in the Hebrew Elohim, the first part El means God. Elohim, him means there's a plurality there. So Elohim is a plural form for God because Elohim is a plural noun. Now, it's more accurate to say that Elohim speaks of the spirit world. Okay? Supernatural beings. All angels holy or fallen, other supernatural beings are all Elohim. But there's only one Yahweh Elohim. When you have Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitalized, attached to God, Elohim, it always speaks of God who created the heavens and the earth. Okay? It always speaks of Yahweh. So, Gabriel, the angel, Michael, the angel, Lucifer, the angelic realm, holy and fallen angels, the seraphim, the cherubim, the four living creatures in Revelation, these are all Elohim. But there's only one Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh Elohim is what created that spirit world. Now, when he created them, they weren't fallen angels. And, you know, Lucifer wasn't Satan and things like that. That came later when he created them, they were all good. All right? Um, So here, in uh, Psalm 8, verse 4, it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and the Hebrew word there is Elohim. Okay? In Exodus 12, verse 12, and there's many more verses, but that's just way too many to put up there. Exodus 12.12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. word gods there is the Hebrew word Elohim. Well, the gods there are false gods, still called Elohim. So, all evil spirits, fallen angels, demons are also Elohim. False gods are also Elohim. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 so we can have an understanding of this that Paul brings to our attention. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us this, starting in verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Well, they're they're believers in Christ. Of course, they're not worshiping at idols, if they're also worshiping Christ. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourself what I say. So he's going to define what he means when he says flee from idolatry. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread, one body, for we all partake of one bread. So when we take communion together as the body of Christ, we are participating. We're partaking in what the Lord said to do and doing this in remembrance of him. So we're fellowshipping with Christ is what we're doing. Okay. And then it says, um, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar? Back in the day, yes, you know, as you brought your sacrifice to the altar, some would go to the priest, some would go home with you, okay? And so you participate, you fellowship with all that means, what represents your sin or whatever you're making the offering for, you're participating with that, you're in agreement with that, okay? But then it says in verse 20, or verse uh, 19, what am I saying then? Good question, Paul, what are you saying? That an idol is anything, or what offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So if you go to someone's house that worships at a certain idol, then the food that's probably being put before you is a food that has been sacrificed to that idol, Paul is saying there's a reality here that behind every idol, every false religion is a demon, and so if you participate with that food by eating that food with them, you are participating in the fellowship of what that person who brought before you with a demon paul is saying. Don't do that. I know you don't believe in idols. I know that that idol doesn't mean anything to you. But that food you're about to eat with those other people that do believe in that idol, guess what? You're participating with them. Don't do that. And they're thinking, why? It's just a piece of wood. It's a piece of metal. It's just something they worship, but there's nothing to it. To us, yes. To them, no. And the reality is there is a demon behind it. There is an evil spirit behind it, behind every false religion. There is a demon. There is a fallen angel. Okay? So, he says, however, there's only one Yahweh Elohim. Okay? Um, And so, Elohim, again, is that general statement. Um, Yahweh Elohim is unique. We see this in Psalm 86, verse 8. Among the gods, Elohim, the spirit world, there is none like you, O Lord. Nor are there any works like your works. Again, the word God's there is Elohim. Psalm 95, verse 3 says, For the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitalized, Yahweh is the great God, L, and the great king above all the spirit world that he created. Okay, Elohim. Verse 6 says, Oh, come, because of this, because Yahweh Elohim. Is the greatest, and there's no one like him. Because of that, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Lord Yahweh, our Maker. For he is our Elohim, he is our God. So even though there's other Elohims, it's only Yahweh Elohim that we bow down to and worship and serve. Okay? So there might be other Elohims, but there's only one Elohim that we bow down to, and that is Yahweh. So in Psalm 99, verse 5, it says, Exalt Yahweh our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. And so there's many other scriptures that also talk about that we worship only Yahweh Elohim, Lord our God. So when John falls down before the angel in order to worship him, after he was shown the glory of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22, 8, we read this. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, another Elohim, okay, of the spirit world, who showed me these things, and this one was a holy one. And then he said, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Don't worship anybody else in the spirit world, John. Even if they're good and they're bringing you some amazing news, you only worship God. And so he is the only entity in the whole universe, outside the universe, that's worthy of our love, service, and worship. And so that is why when you see the word Lord, when it's spelled in all capital, that speaks of Yahweh. And Yahweh is the one that introduced himself that way to Moses. In Exodus 3.15, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Lord, Hebrew, Yahweh, means self-existing one. He doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need anyone. In Exodus 15, 3, The Lord... Yahweh is a man of war. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Hosea 12.5, this is the Lord, Yahweh, God of hosts. The Lord, Yahweh, is his memorial name. Psalm 83.16, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, Yahweh, Lord there. Psalm 83.18, that they may know that that you, whose name alone is Yahweh, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And so, Lord is God's personal name. However, we see that Jesus introduces Yahweh to us. When the, um, when the disciples come to say, hey, teach us how to pray, and he goes, all right, you're followers of me, you're children of God, so this is what you can call Yahweh. You know what you can call him? Father that 's a much more intimate enduring endearing term than Yahweh than his own personal name you know my dad 's name is milton uh, Milt Love, and so he went to be with the Lord about four years ago and um and so uh you know i didn 't call him milt, I called him Dad, you know, but his name, his personal name is Milt, but I called him Dad, I called him Father, you know, and so yes, his personal name is Yahweh, but guess what? We can call him father because we have received Jesus and become children of God. And so he would rather that, you know. I know if I ever call my dad, hey, Milt, what are you doing? You know, you call me dad. That's better. It's more special. Nobody else can call me that except you. You're my kid. And that's what I would submit to you is the same way with, with God the father. He wants us to call him father. Call him father if you know Jesus because you're his child. You're his child. Notice here in Exodus chapter 20, going back there, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, says, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh your Elohim, Okay, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Isn't it interesting that before he gives the law, he reminds them of something? He reminds them that he is the one that brought them out of the land of Egypt, He is the one that brought them out of the house of bondage. What is it that God is saying here? This is what God is saying. Before I give you the law, let me first remind you of the good news. Let me first remind you of the gospel. Before I give the law, you're going to get the gospel. And what is the gospel? What is the good news? That this great God is a God who saves. That's the good news. I find it so interesting that before he gives the law, he gives the good news. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God reminds the people of Israel the good news of their salvation. For centuries, they've been in captivity with the different pharaohs of Egypt. God then raises up a redeemer in Moses, sends him to Pharaoh to declare to Pharaoh that he is to let God's people go, and he doesn't do that, and so he sends the ten plagues. And then it wasn't until the sacrifice of the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb. then Then Pharaoh releases God's people, but then he comes after him again, and then God opens the Red Sea and drowns Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And on the other side, he provides water and bread in the journey to Mount Sinai. God delivered his people to be in the very place that they are before him at Mount Sinai. God wants to make sure that they understand the only reason you're here right now at Mount Sinai is because I have delivered you. He's the one that did it. And so God saved them from slavery so that they would have the freedom now to serve and worship him. And so the first 19 chapters in Exodus is a story of God's amazing salvation of Israel. And then chapter 20 here, he then begins to give the law. And guess what? Because of what I've done for you, this is how you're to live and this is how you're to serve me and this is how you're to worship me. Let me ask you a question. Does God not have the right to say how he should be worshipped? Does God not have the right to say how we're supposed to live? Does God not have the right to tell us how to serve him? Yes, he's God. How arrogant. For us to think that we could worship him in our own way. How arrogant for us to think that we can serve him in our own way. How arrogant to think that we could live our lives the way we want to live our lives and that should be okay with God. How arrogant to even entertain that thought after all that God has done for us. I want you to go to Deuteronomy here, chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is telling them that, look, future generations are going to come and they're going to ask, why are you doing all this? You know, why do you only worship me as God? They're going to hear of other nations and the gods that they worship. They're going to ask why you go through all the things that you go through. And this is what you're going to tell them. So future generations, when your son comes to you and asks, it says in verse 20 of Deuteronomy 6, When your son asks you in time to come saying, what is the meaning of the testimony, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. Then he brought us up out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our our fathers. So give the history of how you got to be where you are and why is it you worship God? Why is it worship Yahweh Elohim? Why him? Why do we do what we do? Because God brought us out of slavery, out of Egypt, into this wonderful promised land that he's providing so much for us so we can serve and worship him. They should all know this. And then it says here, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for His sake. Does your Bible say that? Mine doesn't either. You know what's interesting? He could, and that would still be right. (laughs) Why, Why are you obeying all these laws? Why are you worshiping Him? Why are you serving Him? Well, for His sake, He's God. We should. He deserves it. And that's absolutely true. But that's not what he says. He says here, for the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always. It's always for our good. To worship God, to serve Him, to live for Him. It's always for our good. Go through the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Why? It's for your own good, really. See, it seems easier to smart off and not listen to what they say. Yeah, but that's that's your sin nature. Hey, do not steal. Really? Because that looks really cool and I'm pretty sure I can get away with it. No, it won't be for your good if you do that. It won't be for your good not to honor your mother and father. You can go down the list and everything after that. It won't be good for you not to obey these things. It is for your own good always to obey what the Lord says because he's created you And he knows what's best for you. Look what it says here. That he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteous for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Go over here to chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. Here he kind of brings it up again in verse 12 of chapter 10. What's the essence of the law? How can we summarize it? Well... He says in verse 12, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Not only told him once, it's told him now twice. This really is the best thing for you. It's the same thing for today. Did not God create you? If he did, doesn't he know what's best for you? He does. And so wouldn't it be best for you to serve him and worship him? It would. It would be best for you. It's still for your own good. To follow God, worship God who created you because he knows what's best for you. It is for your own good. The law is good because God is good. And because God is good, this law is good for all of humanity. And the law is for their benefit. The best life that you could ever live here on earth is one that involves obedience and worship of the one true God, the one who created you. Now, we see here in the commandments, we see here throughout all the law of Moses, we see here how God rescued Israel from Egypt, a pattern, a picture, a type. In the Exodus, we see this picture of God and his people And just like God rescued Israel from the bondage of Egypt, God rescues us from the bondage of sin. Just like God released Israel from the bondage by the blood of the Passover lamb, so too have we been rescued from the bondage of sin by the blood of the lamb who is no other than Jesus Christ. Which is why John the Baptist would look at him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Referring to the lamb that Isaiah saw as a person in Isaiah 53. It's interesting because God calls Israel out of Egypt in order to have this special relationship with them. And God calls us out of the bondage of sin through his son Jesus in order to have a loving, special relationship with him. The law is good because the law reflects the character of God. But here's the problem. The law does not give you the power to obey it. There's nothing enabling in the law for you to obey the law. You were always going to fail. You were always going to disobey when it was given. It did not have the power to give you to actually fulfill it and to do it perfectly. Okay, well, if God is giving the law, knowing that mankind cannot do it, then what's the point? The point is to show that you are a sinner, that you cannot perfectly obey the law. Why? Because there's something wrong with us. We have a sin nature. We have a sin nature. And so it's there to push us to Christ. It's there to show us that we're a sinner. The law is like a mirror. It shows you when you have a little bit of schmutz on your face. Little bit of dirt, something's out of line here, you know. You look in a mirror because you want to leave looking okay, but the mirror shows that you know that what you had for lunch that day, so it's kind of like, okay, I'm glad I saw that, so now you can wash your face, okay. But you don't take the mirror that reveals that to you to wash your face, we need Jesus for that. Instead, the mirror is there to say, This is who you are, you're imperfect. You're a sinner. You can't adhere to the law. That's what it's there to say. Now I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. The Hebrew author in Hebrews 7 verse 18 tells us this. For on the one hand, speaking about the law... Okay. And what Jesus has done. It says, on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment or the former law. Why? Because of its weakness, because of its unprofitableness. It can't, it can't do what it is that it is asking us to do. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through, through which we draw near to God. In um in Genesis, we are told that Abraham believed God and it accounted him to righteousness. When God spoke to Abraham and said, Hey, you know what? From you your descendants will come. Okay. And that descendant, as we'll see here in Galatians, is speaking of a specific descendant, his seed, which then goes back to Genesis uh twelve three when it says, And through you, Abraham, all the the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's some seed that's going to come from you that all the nations of the earth is going to be blessed. And then God tells him again in um, uh, Genesis 13 and 15. Okay. So there was always a future hope of a person that was to come. That's why Job would say, my redeemer lives. He believed in a redeemer that after he dies, His Redeemer is going to live, the person that's going to come and redeem him. And because he lives, he's going to live also. So Job knew of this Messiah who was to come. Those in the Old Testament knew about the Messiah who was to come. All the ceremonial laws, all the feasts, all the festivals pointed to that person who is to come. And that spoke of a better hope, is what that spoke of. And it says... For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope. It is to show you that this isn't permanent. It was always going to be temporary, the law through Moses. And it's through that better hope that we're going to draw near to God. Okay? Now, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 9. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to start here in verse 11. It says here. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So the Hebrew authors is trying to show the difference between the high priest before Jesus and Jesus is now our real high priest, okay? the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He first would have to do an animal sacrifice for himself in order to atone for himself. That was only a covering. It did not take it away permanently. It was only a covering. And once that animal sacrifice was done, he would then they would then do an animal sacrifice for the people. And then he would take the blood from the altar and he would go into the holy place and then into the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle the blood of that animal sacrifice right there of a goat or a lamb, all right? And he would sprinkle that on the mercy seat. Now, what a lot of people don't understand, and, and we're about to get into this when we, we talk about the furniture and all the stuff that's going to go in the tabernacle, but you, you have uh, two pieces of furniture here. You have the Ark of the Covenant, was, which is just a, a box, okay, that's overlaid in gold, but no lid on it, okay? So that's one piece of furniture. Another piece of furniture is the lid, and that's called the mercy seat. Okay, It's its own separate piece. It is not attached to the box. It's its own piece to put on the box. It was made of pure gold. So the lid was pretty heavy, okay? made of solid gold. On top of that, you have the cherubim Okay, with, with wings pointing towards each other, looking down. They're facing each other, but they're looking down. Upon the mercy seat. That is also on top of the mercy seat. All made out of one piece of gold. Extremely heavy. Extremely heavy. Okay. Every year, sprinkling of blood on there. So these cherubim are always looking down, looking down, looking down. The mercy seat. What is the mercy seat covering? What's in the Ark of the Covenant? The law. What does the law tell you? You're a sinner. And the wage of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here you have year after year after year after year. And I would submit to you that afterwards that God would receive up in an offering would probably burn off that blood. Because they don't have spring cleaning day okay where they come in once the the priest can only come but you know hazel can come in and then just wipe off the blood and make it all nice and shiny for the next time the priest comes in you know what i'm saying so it's it's kind of like so what's happening so one or two things is happening either this is caked with blood year after year after year after year and it's a bloody mess could be i don't know or after the, the priest leaves, you know, God receives that sacrifice. We, we, we see all the time how fire comes down and God receives the sacrifice that way. I'd probably submit to you that's probably what happens. So year after year, he doesn't see that blood, which means that God received that sacrifice, okay? But when Jesus died and Mary went into the tomb, and you can read about that in John uh, chapter 20, okay? When she goes into the tomb, what does she see? She sees where Jesus had been laid out, okay, but the body's not there. But what does she see? She sees two angels, one at the foot, one at the head. Kind of like acting out exactly what the mercy seat does, thus facing each other, probably saying, that was the guy. That is the one whose blood will take away once for all. That all those other, you know, year after year for for, uh, you know, a thousand years or so, that was always pointing to the Messiah who was to come. Wow. And so the Hebrew author is saying, look, Jesus is our high priest now. Okay, he's our high priest. He actually goes into the Holy of Holies with his own blood. And he says here, and, but with his own blood, he enters the most holy place once for all. Don't need to do the sacrifice anymore. Don't need to do the sacrifice anymore. Having now obtained eternal redemption. That's for us. You receive Jesus' sacrifice, guess what? You're eternally redeemed by his blood. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of the Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. There's no blemish on him. He's innocent. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. It speaks of Jesus. Go over here, verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. When it says apart from sin, that's talking about Jesus coming the first time to solve the sin problem. Okay, He's already come that first time. He's now going to come a second time. He is going to appear to his people a second time. At death, as well as possibly at the rapture. If you hang on long enough, he'll appear at that time. If not, he'll appear at death. For what reason? For salvation. But I thought we were already saved. You are. Understand that there's three aspects of salvation. There's past, there's present, there's future. Okay? Have it up right up there. Okay? Um, when you receive Jesus, you are saved from what? The penalty of sin. That's in the past. You're righteous before God. You're justified. You're innocent. Your penalty has been paid. So you're saved, past tense, in that regard. You're constantly being saved from the bondage of sin. That's sanctification. Uh, Romans 6 through 8 t- talks about that. Okay, um, This is a process where you're learning to overcome sin through the Spirit. Okay, As you learn to walk in the Spirit, not of the flesh. That's an ongoing process. And then you have a future salvation when you are saved from the very presence of sin. That speaks of glorification, the glorification of your new body as you absent from the body present with the Lord. Once you're present with the Lord, guess what? You're you're absent from the very presence of sin. And that's what the salvation there is speaking of. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, look what it says here. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and we spoke about this a little bit last week, uh, that the law is a shadow. It's not the reality of the thing. It's a, it's a shadow. Okay, um, in, uh, in Colossians 2.16, Paul says, hey, look, all the feasts, all the festivals, all the Sabbaths, all the new moons, guess what? That, 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 that speaks of a reality, which is Christ. So all those things pointed to Jesus. Same thing here. The law here is a shadow of the good thing to come. Well, that good thing is Jesus, and he has come and not the very image of the things, and can never, with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. All those animal sacrifices can't make you perfect, because animal sacrifices, even though God is showing the death of something innocent for the guilty, they're still animals. They're not humans. They're not humans. And so in order to take away human sin, has to be a perfect human offering. That's Jesus, fully God, fully man. That's why God had to come in the form of a human. He didn't come in the form of an animal. Had to be a human. It says in verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Yeah, when you bring the lamb Uh, uh, there on on Passover, Uh, it it is a reminder that you're going to have to do that year after year after year. When you bring your sin offering uh, there, it is a reminder you're going to have to do it year after year after year, Um, uh, that if you're there the next year, you'll be bringing another sacrifice. It is a reminder you're going to have to come year after year after year because, verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Only a perfect human sacrifice, and that's Jesus. Therefore, when he came, that'd be Jesus, into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burn offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Every offering, every sacrifice up to Christ, God took no pleasure in that. He took no pleasure in that. But you know what he did take pleasure in? Isaiah 53, which speaks about the Messiah who's going to die and like a lamb led to the slaughter. Speaking of his son, Jesus, he took pleasure in him dying. Dave, where does it say that? Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's his son. That's the Messiah. He has put him to grief. When you make a soul an offering for sin, He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It pleased the Lord to offer up his son as a sacrifice. Why did it please him? Because he saw the fruit of what would come of it, knew of the fruit that would come of it, that many people will receive that offering once and for all and become children of God and be able to make their way back to their creator. How awesome God is. Hebrews 10, verse 7 says, Then I said, Behold, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. That's Jesus speaking there. How do I know? John 5, 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The scriptures speak of Jesus. In the volume of the book it is written of me, the Messiah says. Hebrews 10.8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, offerings for sin you did not desire. No, had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first so he may establish the second. The moment you receive Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, guess what? You are no longer under the law. But Dave, you said that we were under the law a couple weeks ago. Well, that is the law of God. That never changes. But you're not, no longer under the law that condemns you, okay? You're no longer in the law that condemns you. And what condemns you is the reason why you have all, all the sacrifices, all the offerings, all the rituals, all the ceremonial law, and stuff like that. You're not under that anymore. Now when you sin, and you do sin, I still sin. I now go boldly into the throne room of God. And I say, Lord, forgive me for this. And you're forgiven. You're no longer under the way the law would have you go before God to be clean and to have your sin temporarily removed. You're no longer under that. You're now no longer under law. You're under grace. You're now under this second um, covenant, a covenant of grace. That is what you have with you, okay? And that will help you to adhere to the moral law, which is still there. God's moral law is still there. Jesus is the new covenant, and it is a covenant by grace. And again, uh, like it says in verse 10, by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's a covenant of grace. You know, it's interesting, I looked this up, and the word grace is only used 20 times in the Old Testament. Okay, okay. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't gracious. That doesn't mean that, still, that he doesn't have grace with his people. It's just that that word isn't used that much, but we can certainly see God being gracious. He was certainly gracious by taking Israel out of Egypt, was he not? Of course he was. Did they deserve it? They did not. Did he do them a favor? He did. But it's interesting to me that in the New Testament, we see grace used 117 times. It's not used in Matthew's gospel. It's not used in Mark's gospel. It's used in Luke. it's Luke using John. It's not in First John. It's in Second John. It's not in Third John. I don't know why. you know? So again, but it's all through the rest of the New Testament, it's everywhere. And, it, and, and no wonder, because in John 1:17 it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not about works anymore. It's not about the law of Moses anymore. Just receive the free gift that God has given. What's the gift? His grace. What's grace? Jesus. It's a person. The word grace here in the Greek Charis means favor. It's unmerited favor. It can't be earned. You did nothing to deserve it. It was a favor. It was a gift. And you know what the gift represents? It re- represents the giver. Now, as much as you're thinking, oh, I want to give him a gift. You know, what is, uh, what is he all about and all that stuff? What is he like and all those kind of things? And then that's the gift I'm going to give. But as you give it, it's still a reflection of you, how much thought you put into it. You know, of how much you got to know that person in order to know this would be a really good gift for them. It still represents the giver. When you give a gift, it represents you. So remember that when you're being cheap. <laughs> Just saying. Okay? But here it speaks of the giver, it speaks who God is. It's one of the reasons why we can read in, in Romans 5 8. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That speaks volumes of who God is. It's not as though God sent his son because you had all this massive humanity crying out, God, where are you? We want to get to know you. Oh, please show us yourself. And none of that was going on. When God sent forth his son, man was as far away from God as you could possibly get. And yet he still sent his son. He still sent his son because that speaks of him, how much he loves us and what a loving, gracious, amazing God that he is. For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we understand this as being a gift. And you cannot stand justified before God any other way than receiving the gift that he has given us in Jesus. Okay? Paul talks about this in Galatians 2.16. Paul says, Uh, says this. He says, knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Justified means be made innocent, not guilty, okay? So knowing that a man is not made not guilty, not made innocent or justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. I find it fascinating here that with all that that Paul put in there, he's saying the same thing twice. He takes it first from, from the negative of, of the works of the law by saying no man is justified by the works of the law. He's only justified by believing in Christ. And it's only by being in, believing in Christ that you'll be justified from the law because you can't be justified by works. He says the same thing twice. He says it just kind of first the negative, then the positive. But he says, says the same thing twice. One can make the case he's from Philly. Because they always say sing twice. Hey, you want to go to the game? Let's go to the game. Want to get something to eat? Let's get something to eat. Hey, did you know that the justifi- justification of the law doesn't work? You have to believe in Christ. Don't you understand? You have to believe in Christ and the justification of the law doesn't work? He's from Philly. This verse says, matter-of-factly, the law can't justify you. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. It goes back and forth. God has a holy standard. No one can live up to it. You can't be justified by it. There is something about um, humanity that long ago Satan got in there and made us believe, and we've believed it for over 6,000 years. Or 5,500 years. A long time. That somehow there are scales. And so long as I do more good than bad... I'll be okay when I meet God in heaven. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You cannot earn your way to God. You cannot earn your way to heaven. It's only through Jesus. You cannot just be justified by your works. It's not as though the law is there and you're doing pretty good and God is just saying, come on, a few more good works. You're almost there. A few more good works. You're going to be innocent. You'll be justified before me. That is never going to happen. And that's why Paul simply says in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Period. End of story. So Dave, what good is the law? It pushes us towards Christ. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Curses everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You're cursed. If you can't do all of them, you're cursed. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Again, in the Old Testament, they always had faith in the Messiah who is to come. They all knew about the Redeemer that would come. And it was only, you're only justified. The reason I'm doing all these works of the law and everything else is because I know it speaks of the Redeemer who is to come. I know I can't do it perfectly. But I believe there's someone who will come and will do it perfectly. And guess who Will redeem me. And my Redeemer will live. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, "Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So he took that curse for us, the penalty for death, the, 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 the penalty for sin, he took upon himself, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Whoa, where, where's Abraham coming? I thought we were talking about the law of Moses and everything else. Yeah, but there was was a covenant before the covenant with Moses. Okay? And that preceded the law. All right? And there was a promise given there. And guess what? The law can't annul that. And what was the promise given to Abraham? That That Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of Christ through faith. Over here in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham has promised this. Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse you who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How are all the families of the earth blessed through the law of Moses? Through Judaism. It's not. How are all the families of the earth blessed? Through Abraham, through the seed that came through him, Jesus. And that's exactly what he goes on to say here in verse 15. He says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. That promise, Genesis chapter 12, was made to Abraham and his seed descendants. Ah, but it's not made to his descendants per se. So now to Abraham, his seed were the promise made, but it does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. Messiah was always supposed to come through Abraham's seed, through the Jewish people. That's where it came from. And this, I say that the law, which was 430 years later, Cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. That's one to Abraham. That it should make the promises of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And then look at the next verse. What purpose then does the law serve? That's a great question. It was added because of transgression. You're given the law so you don't just go Wild that you have a law that you know that you're supposed to adhere to and that will keep you from becoming a real sinful group of people. So the law is given there because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. You know intellectually you're supposed to do this, but you had nothing inside of you that, w- that enabled you to do what you know intellectually that you're supposed to do. That's the law. But then Jesus comes. You're not under the law anymore. But now that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, because Jesus lived and died for you, how can you not return the favor and now live for him? Now you have the Holy Spirit inside of you that starts to to develop these desires to actually do what God wants you to do. And when you submit to God, you'll be able to do that through the Spirit. And so... The law was given till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which would have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confirmed all under sin. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall. Short of the glory of God. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after the faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're not. We now have the Spirit inside of us. We have the spirit inside of us. So, what are we supposed to do with the law today? Well, Timothy tells us, 1 Timothy 1 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. How do you use the law lawfully? You use it this way lawfully. If you don't know Jesus, okay, then you need to first be convinced that you're a sinner. And so you use the law to be able to show, well, look, just so you know, we all fall into the same uh, mantle in the sense of uh, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. God shows us his perfect will in the law because God is good. His standards are good. And so his standards for us is that same expectation of who he is. And here's his standards. Well, nobody can do that. You're right. So what's the purpose of that? To be able to show you're in a very, very bad state. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. But here's the good news. A Savior has been given. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. That's why in First Timothy eight it says, here's how you use the law lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. But for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy, profane, murders of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, for sinners. We use the law today to show a person's need for grace. And grace has been given in that person of Jesus. And Jesus is that life preserver because you're out drowning in the ocean and way too far from shore and that life preserver is sent so you'll grab hold of it and you'll brought into the land of God meaning you land in him for all of eternity. I want you to go to James 4. We're going to end with this. James 4 The law was performance-based to be able to show you could not do it. And people sometimes come to Jesus and think that they have to perform for him in order to get, get favor from him. Not true. Some of you are probably frustrated in your walk. Why can't I be a better Christian? Why can't I be like this guy or this gal? Why is it that I'm constantly failing and this and that? And I would submit to you is somehow you're still trying to do things in the flesh. You're trying to take your relationship with Jesus and trying to perform and do good works without submitting to the Spirit and just learning to walk by the Spirit each and every day. And somehow you have this tally in your mind. I've come to church 18 Sundays in a row. I'm I'm horrified that you would even know that. Because you're doing something. I have knelt down at 5.45 a.m. for 22 days in a row to meet with God. Why do you know that? Somehow, your Christian faith has become performance-based, and you're no longer walking in the Spirit. You're walking in the flesh. You're walking in the flesh. Here, in James 4, it says, where do wars and fight come from among you? Now, believe, now understand, this is speaking to believers, okay? Jewish believers, believers, where do wars and fights come from among you, Jewish believers? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? Don't we understand that even though we're believers, we still desire pleasures, don't we? We do. That war in your members. I have the Holy Spirit inside me, but I still have the flesh, and they still battle. They still battle. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot attain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, he isn't calling them literally that that you're murderers, but remember how Jesus explained what murder is, and we'll get into that when we get into the Ten Commandments and everything else. Even if you think about being angry with someone, you, you murder them in your heart, and there's all sorts of things. You've You know, um, even before I was a believer, you know, I would sometimes think, man, I would just love to see that person be dead. I've murdered him in my my heart, you know. And so he's not speaking of literally you murdered and literally you cannot covet anyway. Covetousness is the one commandment that speaks of your heart. When we get there, oh, that'll be fine. We'll all leave here weeping and gnashing in teeth, (laughs) lamenting. Okay, so... He is telling them, he says, look, you have all these desires and things. You're fighting for them and everything else. You're asking for certain, certain things, but you don't have because, guess what? In verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You think you're asking for a really good, righteous reason, but you and I both know it's really carnal. Okay. And look what he says there, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He is calling these believers, adulterers, adulteresses. You want to have fellowship with something you shouldn't have fellowship. He's not speaking literally. He's saying if you have desires that you shouldn't have for things of the world, you're an adulterer, you're an adulteress. Aren't we all guilty now? This reminds me of Luke 18, 10 through 14, when it talks about the tax collector and the Pharisee going before God in prayer. God says only one of them was justified when they were done. And the, and, and the Pharisee goes, Oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. You know, I'm so glad that I tithe. You know, I'm so glad I do all these things went to church for 18 Sundays in a row, met with God at 545 in the morning, every single morning. You know, I'm sure glad I did these things. But the tax collector stands there and just goes, I'm doing it again. I I need your mercy. I need your grace. And when he calls upon his mercy, it's the same word propitiation, which means mercy seat. I need the person who's going to take away my sin. I need your mercy. He went home justified that day. I, I say all that because look what it says here. He calls them adulterous and adulteresses. You, you want friendship with the world, things like that. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy. We grieve the spirit all the time. As much as we, we, we try to submit to God and walk in the spirit, we still probably grieve the spirit quite often, if not every day. Because you thought something you shouldn't have thought, you, 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 you pondered or meditated on something you shouldn't have pondered or meditated on, uh, you, you spent time doing something that, you know, it could have been just something mindless, like being on your phone or whatever. And the next thing you know, two hours have gone by and you're going, oh man, that, that could have been better spent. Although cat videos are pretty awesome. But anyway, <laughs> um, but look what it says in verse six. If you're doing that, If you're an adulteress and adulteress, friendship of the world, if you're doing that, verse 6, but he gives more grace, come to him. He's not going to beat you up. He's going to give you more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. Stop trying to be a good Christian in the flesh. God's resisting that, and that is why it's not working for you, and that's why you're probably frustrated. I tried God for like six months, it didn't work. That's why. But God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Again, there is something you need to do. You need to go to God, absolutely. There are things that we need to do. But understand what do you need to do? Go to God. Go to God, submit to him. And I would submit to you you go to God in prayer. And you can do that any time during the day. And you can go to God in his word. And you can go to God when you come to church or any other get-together that the church body has. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil. There's still a resistance that has to take place on our end. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. That's what the tax collector did. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. Man's efforts as being a Christian is going to cause you so much pain, and you will not learn to walk in the Spirit that way. We will get more into that as we talk more about grace as we go back and forth. But let me say this, Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of what grace? That we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. After we pray and after we uh, have this next song, as the worship team comes up here, Amen. Go, where are they? See how quickly that could have happened. But just giving them a little heads up. Worship team, worship team, worship team. Come on up, worship team. There they come. They're right there. All right. So, um, but just, just want you to know this. You come into the throne room of grace. He wants to give you grace. And after he gives you grace, you know what he wants? He wants to give you more grace. That's what he wants to do. Afterwards, we're going to ask people to come up. If you need prayer, come on up. And, and, and a lot of you go, oh, I don't want to go up there. Where people think I have problems. You do have problems, but I want you to know something The people who are up here that are going to pray for you also have problems. And probably bigger problems. And and you just got to believe the Lord is so into that going, this person is praying for that when they're so whacked out and they've been crying to me all week and this and that. And here they are about to pray for someone else. I'm all over that, God is saying. Because it's him. It's not me praying for you. It's the Holy Spirit in me that is now praying over you. And if you receive Jesus, I don't care how good or bad of a Christian you think you are, the Holy Spirit is still inside of you, and you can pray for one another. Amen? Let's pray.